You are listening to the Savage Wonder Podcast. This show is a long-form conversation with a veteran in the arts. This show is produced by Veterans Repertory Theater, which is a tax-exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization, which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. I want to tell you guys about one of the greatest uh, theatrical experiences I ever had. It was 1999, and I saw uh, art. Must have been, I mean, I it was probably like the eighth or ninth cast to do art. But I saw it at the Wyndham on the West End uh, in London, and uh, loved. Lo- I had not seen the play before. It was the first time I'd seen it, and it uh, blew me away. I just, it was the kind. It's just my kind of play. I just really really enjoyed the shit out of it it was funny but it really was uh, intellectually stimulating for me um i loved the tension between the characters i loved the argument i loved how the pettiness of their arguments masked a much deeper uh hurt and pain and sense of betrayal i just thought it was incredibly clever and well crafted and and profound and uh, and again, uh, laughed my ass off throughout. So much so that I went back and saw it the next two weekends, and the cast changed in between then. So I saw three performances, two casts, two different casts, and um, and that stood out as a seminal moment in the theater for me. I just really, really, really enjoyed the shit out of it. What does that have to do with my guest today? Well, I bring it up because my guest today was the incredibly talented, prolific, versatile, um, articulate, intelligent, Ariana Rose. And Ariana's play, Sex, Lies, and Styrofoam, placed third in our second 10-minute playwriting competition. The play, um, and that, that is no mean feat. Uh, I mean, we had, I think, 208 or 206 submissions. So to place third was um, really something. Ariana submitted um, several pieces to us and has submitted. I can't remember if they're all in this last competition or if they're also in the first competition. But she was one of those writers whose work I could tell um, because of so many recurring themes. And we talk about it on the show, so I won't give a whole lot of spoilers about um, what I love about her work. But uh, but there was... Um, yeah, so many great themes that she explores, and always with a um, a tinge of injustice at the root of the problems. I've, I, at least I've I've found in the plays that I've read of hers, um, you know. But what in this play? Sorry, I was gonna, I was going to go on and compliment more about her work, but I'm trying to stay focused just on sex, lies, and styrofoam for a second. What I loved about her play is that it was just entertaining as fuck and when you you know reading 10 minute plays that's about as high a compliment as you can get i think it is a play that has a bit of curiosity to it it's memorable it makes you laugh it has a surprise or two it's well written there's believable characters there's good interplay between them and that's fucking entertaining and to me, 
it made me think about what I loved about theater and what I loved about seeing art because I really believe that theater has always had an existential crisis in the, inside the theater community because there is a natural, completely understandable, relatable, I get it, temptation to do more than just entertain in theater. And that's not wrong, let me be clear. Um, all of us have biases, all of us have issues we care about, things we care about, subject matters we care about, and all of us would like to communicate that to an audience. Um, what I find is the need to incessantly proselytize, preach, treat theater like church um, for an audience, uh, if that outweighs your desire to just fucking entertain, then you're going to lose the thread. And for my money, I haven't really ever said this out loud before, but for my money, most theater does not entertain me. Um, you know, I make it a point to see theater uh, a lot now, but for many years, um, I didn't see theater at all. I didn't think I was going to be coming back to the theater. I adored the medium. Who doesn't like live performance? People go see, you know, who doesn't like seeing a great stand-up show, a great music act, great concert? You know, live performance is incredible. But a lot of the subject matter, a lot of the stories, a lot of characterizations, all that in theater, um, I just felt like was an internal conversation in a increasingly provincial art form that didn't really include me, which obviously is why Vet Rep was created <laughs> in a very selfish way because it was nice to, um, you know, try to bring people that I could relate to into theater so I could have people to play with in, in my sandbox. That's the completely selfish uh, aspect of the motivation of, of Vet Rep's creation. So when I read Ariana's play, when I read Sex, Lies, and Styrofoam, um, it was... It, it, it popped its head above the crowd of all these other plays because it was just pure fun. There wasn't an agenda. There wasn't, or, or there. Let me be clear: there may be an agenda. And uh, you know, as you hear when you talk to her, Ariana is nothing if not passionate. Uh, you know, committed, thoughtful, um, has the appropriate degree of agitas and 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 um, empathy, and you know. Uh, a sense internal sense of justice that any writer should have in whatever way that manifests itself in their work. But what I loved is that in this play, it came out in a way that I was, I was like, this is something that's going to entertain the fuck out of an audience. And at the end of the day for us at vet rep, for me personally, I always will take the audience's side and I look at everything through the audience's side. What do I think they are going to enjoy now? If they happen to be, educated, enlightened, challenged by that, inshallah. But that's not the primary objective. Primary objective is to entertain the fuck out of them. And Ariana created just a delightful, witty, clever, uh, funny, <laughs> uh, 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 what do I want to say? Twisted piece that uh, I was like, yeah, that's a delight. It's a delight to read. So I wanted to have her on the show uh, because her play was great. And, um, you know, 
we like to talk to everybody that that is you know becomes a finalist in our competitions and learn you know more about them uh her father was in the public health service uh and we talk about what that meant and what that meant for him to be in life-saving work and how that impacted her career and herself as a person, you know, her childhood and, and, you know, who she became because of that. Now having talked to her, what stands out to me about Ariana is that, um, is that inherent curiosity about herself that drives her to write so much, so often, so well. Um, and the amount of time she's spent teaching writing and looking at writing from 360 degrees uh, really pays off, I think, in this interview. I, you know, I like to really pry into people's, you know, backgrounds and all and family history and all that. I felt like I artificially had to shoehorn that in because Honestly, I could have just sat there and talked craft with her uh, the whole time. I thought she was incredibly interesting and articulate in what she had to say. And I hope you guys will as well. Okay. I'm Christopher Palmeyer. I'm the artistic director at Veterans Repertory Theater. And this is the Savage Wonder of Ariana Rose. Welcome to the show, Ariana. Thank you so much, Chris. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, I, I, I am, usually do a terrible job of starting in chronological order to actually build the background and develop the picture of my guest. And I tend to hop around all over the place, but I thought with you, I would try to be disciplined all right. and, um, and try to start just from the get-go. Were you always a writer from an early age? You know, I think part of me always wanted to be. I was always drawn to theater and musical theater and the arts in general. My mother was um, an illustrator and majored in art in college. My father had a beautiful singing voice and very much into reading and always bring me home books. And he had this wonderful game he would play at the dinner table where he would do two lines that rhymed and then I had to finish them. <laughs> so oh, that's cool. That's a great I'm exercise. Professional lyricist. Yes. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. Yes. That makes complete it sense. And we were so lucky. You know, we I grew up first in New York City and then in a suburb in New Jersey, Freehold, New Jersey. Oh, and uh, so we went to the theater all the time. You know, they knew how important the arts were. We went to theaters, went to museums, went to concerts. Uh, so I uh, was in, enveloped enveloped by that all the time. You know, the arts and the arts as a way of expression and just pure joy. And uh, through high school and, and college, you know, I just did theater all the time. Theater and music. That was my thing. <clears throat> what, have you ever stopped and looked back and wondered why? What, what about it lit you up so much? Well, uh, like many other performers, I was very, very shy as a child. Yeah. yeah. And there's something about being on stage and being able to be somebody else that is very freeing. Also, while you're learning who you actually are and how you want to be in the world. Uh, and plus, it was just fun. You know, there's nothing uh, like creating yeah. something. I am still friends with all my friends that I did theater with in high school and college and beyond. You know, there's that bond that comes when you create something together. And uh, I... Um, I just loved being a part of a community like that, you know, and I loved 
that it was a community for people who felt they were other, you know, as well. You know, it was just a very welcoming community so that no matter where you landed on any spectrum in theater, you were all accepted as who you were. No questions asked, no judgments made. What did you find yourself gravitating towards in theater? What kind of shows did you like? Was it musicals? Was there a certain kind of straight plays you liked? Like, what was your thing? So funny that we still call that straight plays, isn't it? Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> odd term. Um, I, well, for a long time, it was mu- musicals primarily, but I, okay. you know, I performed in a lot of short plays. I also started directing in high school and then continued that in theater. And I actually preferred directing plays but I prefer to perform in musicals. I think just because musicals have so many more moving parts and it's just this big lumbering thing. And, uh, you know, with plays, you can kind of get into the meat of the characters a little bit more and there's just more fun stuff to do. So for a while I did both and I performed really all the way through into my thirties. And then, uh, you know, for many people as well, you know, just that wasn't really what was hitting for me anymore. You know, I preferred directing and I had started to get into writing and just felt like that was a more natural progression for me. Do you feel like as you get older, you have more stories too? That it's like, hey, I, I, enough of doing somebody else's stories. I kind of have my own that I want to get out there. Yes. In fact, as a writer, I tend to write either um, stories from my own personal experience, friends or family's personal experience, or a historical narrative that I then kind of play around with. So, you know, I do have some plays that I've just made up from nothing and characters from nothing. But for the most part, it's based in some sort of reality of my perspective of it as any rate. What's your favorite genre to write in? What turns you on the most now? I think I really like the historical narrative because you can give voice to somebody. And uh, when I write about them, they're not here anymore. You know, so it's a way to um, shine light on their life, on their story, what they brought to it. Um, Case in point, I'm working on a new piece right now. Um, I don't know. Right now, I usually start things as a play. And then if I feel like it sings, you know, then I'll adapt it into a musical. So interesting. Uh, right now, this is a play and it's a, I don't know if you've ever heard of J.C. Leyendecker, but he was a very famous illustrator really from the 1900s up until um, the 1930s. He was the person that created the Arrow Collar Man. And in fact, there is a documentary about him called Coded because his uh, main model for the Arrow Collar Man was his life partner was his lover that moved in and it wasn't safe at that time to, to be outwardly gay. And sure. Time. Sure. And as I was doing my research on it, he had a younger brother who was also an illustrator and who adored him and was pretty much shoved to the side, both by the family and then by this lover when he moved in, his name was Frank Leyendecker. Um, and he was such a wonderful artist as well. And so as I did my research, I thought, you know, I actually want to write the play about him. Because he died um, of drug and alcohol abuse at a fairly young age and never really got to do what he wanted to do. And so for me, I like like writing into that. And neither one of them, all of JC's uh, correspondence and everything was burned at his request after he died. So other than his illustrations that exist and some recollections of people that modeled for him, uh, nobody had any children or anything like that. You know, there's so much a blank space in there to write into. And I love that, you know, so that I can take what I do know, those few facts, and then write what I imagine might've happened in scenarios. I So I've read, I can't remember how many plays you submitted at this point, but I, I know I've read a bunch. <laughs> I, 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 know, I know I've read a couple. So I, I'm not going to try to pretend I'm a subject matter expert on all things Ariana Rose, but <laughs> I do, uh, what I wonder is, is justice writ large 
a common theme for you. And I'm saying that based also on the play that you're writing now. Like it seems like there's a recurring theme of some degree of injustice that's been done and is somehow being either mitigated or rectified or avenged. Absolutely. Um, uh, my first full-length play is called Touch the Moon, and it is based on a young woman's disappearance on an unnamed island and um, her mother's search for her. You obviously can know what I originally based that on, but so many women go missing all over all the time. And in my own family, my nephew went missing, um, thankfully not due to crime, but to a horrible hiking accident. And it was quite some time before they were able to find his body. And wow. so I understood what that is like to be family members in limbo and not knowing where your loved one is. And so I really wanted to write a play about that. Uh, my other full-length play is about the Cone sisters and Gertrude Stein. So it's also a very woman-centric theme mm -hmm. at times in my mm -hmm. work. Um, and they were the very first women to really collect Picasso and Matisse. And they were these very straight-laced Victorian women. So that there was this really weird dichotomy going on there. And it's alleged that there was an affair between Etta, the shy retiring sister, and Gertrude before she met Alice Toklas. So I've written both a play about that. And now um, I've adapted into a musical with Amy Englehart. And we're working on it. And it's quite exciting, actually. <laughs> What and this is I'm noticing. I'm sorry. I'm doing a quality assurance on my own technique here, and I'm realizing. Yep, I'm going to jump around a whole lot. Uh, but it's your fault because you're saying interesting things that I'm just picking up on. Uh, where do, when you workshop? Let's talk about the nitty gritty of musicals. I it's, and I'm saying this also because I just had somebody reach out to us on our website, veteran, and he's like, "Hey, I've been working for 17 years on a musical. I know you guys don't do musicals. Would you have any interest in it?" And Musicals scare me. Talk about the process of developing musicals, because I, I know I know it's a pain in the ass. I know there's a million moving parts to it and all that. But for you, what's that adventure like? Well, you know, when you put things to music, it enhances them. You know, it makes the emotions that much stronger. Uh, and we all respond to music, whatever type of style or music that it is. You can think about your own life and the soundtrack of your life and songs that instantly take you back somewhere. And using songs as a mechanism, uh, as plays do, to reveal character, to reveal intention, you know, to reveal uh, a character making a decision about something in the moment, I think is just so thrilling. Uh, you know, even just talking about it now, like I'm getting chills mm -hmm. body, but, the, you know, when you sit in a Broadway house or anywhere, really, you know, that is doing a musical and that orchestra starts, you know, and that anticipation in the audience, the thrill of live theater, um, especially when it's a musical, there's just nothing like it. You can be transported to a whole other level and the music works on us subconsciously in ways that we don't even yes. understand or know. And, you know, I love all types of musicals. I think there's just a place for everything. I do wish producers would take more chances on musicals that are new and unknown because I've sure. gone through the BMI Musical Theater Workshop. I went through um, the NYU Musical Theater Graduate Writing Program. So I have an MFA in musical theater writing. And I know so many incredible writers and incredible works. And in our current landscape, and certainly, you know, while we're still struggling with the pandemic and theaters are struggling so much, um, there's even less opportunity at times because uh, they need to put bodies in seats, basically. Yeah. Going yeah. For the surefire things. And I totally understand that. And I also know the pendulum effect. So eventually it'll it'll swing back, you know, which is another reason I love vet rep, you know, because you really are creating that venue for people who are either veterans or relatives of veterans to have a place to submit new work, to have it be validated and acknowledged and uh, sometimes performed. So that thank you for that. Well, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, obviously, um, this is one of those things that we look at each other 
And then Lilla, my managing director, picks up her stapler and throws it at me and goes, yeah, we're not getting into musicals just yet. Let's, let's, there's so much to develop. And I don't feel, to be perfectly frank, I don't feel super confident in developing them from your perspective. What are the challenges for you as a writer when you're going into a musical and you realize that, yeah, this is going to be more than a a play. This, this needs to be a musical. Well, as I said, I was trained at BMI and NYU. So there is a craft to lyric writing. You know, I was trained as a lyricist and then as a book writer. I've done some composing when I absolutely have to, but there are people that do it so much better than me. So I, and also I like to collaborate because a collaborator brings something else to the table. And usually what you come up with is going to be better than what you could have thought of on your own. Um, the big challenge is finding the right collaborator. It is just mm-hmm. like a marriage. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, you have to be in in sync, not necessarily about your ideas for things, because you will argue and you'll debate, but you have to always be in concert about what is the play really about and what are we trying to say here? And in the beginning, you don't even know what that is. So it's this long process of figuring out what it what is our story really about? Who is our protagonist? What do they really want? How are we putting obstacles in our path? And what are we doing to assist that? But you know, right now I'm going through a struggle with it just in terms of getting it up on its feet. We have a full libretto oh, yeah. for our uh, at a Cone musical, we have 12 characters instead of five, like the play. Mm-hmm. We want to do a reading here in South Florida, but you know, we're thinking, well, can we afford a musical director? Can we afford to pay 12 actors plus a stage manager? How are we doing this without going deeply into debt ourselves and yet knowing that we need to see what we have? Plays yeah. are so much easier because you could do a Zoom <laughs> with a play reading, um, but music is just so much more challenging because of the limitations of Zoom. And streaming, it's just really almost impossible to get it to work. So you you stole my producer concerns right out of my head. Yes, that that absolutely is one of the scariest things about musicals, the development time and the logistics and the lift involved just in developing it and just in seeing what you have, 100%. What about I, the... Oh, sorry, go ahead. I have another musical that uh, Ben Bonham and I have wrote it. It was our thesis musical at NYU, and it's called The Lost Girl. And it's about... Wendy, Michael, and John Darling, 25 years after Neverland. And when we figured out the time frame for England at that time, it was the suffragette movement, the suffrage movement. So mm-hmm. we actually have this whole subplot going of Wendy getting involved with the suffrage movement, her move towards being an independent woman because she's recently been widowed and has a young daughter, and how that affects everybody in the family while they're all starting to remember that maybe Neverland was real. So uh, Interesting. But we've been working on that off and on since 2012, and um, we've been very, very fortunate in that we have been selected for many readings and workshops. So I Mm. think there was only one time we actually had to pay out of pocket to do anything. But it takes time, and and we're still revising it. Just a month ago, we totally cut the opening number, came up with something totally different, you know, moved things around, cut a scene that we both loved but just doesn't seem to work anymore. So the work itself changes over time. Something might have worked 12 years ago that really with our zeitgeist now and sure. the population of the things that are important to people now, it just doesn't land as well anymore. That a hundred percent, a hundred percent. I think that's something that's not always appreciated by, um, you know, your average layperson is <laughs> there is a peak moment when it seems like a project could be executed and it's at the peak relevance. You know, the timing is is so perfect. And then it does kind of atrophy after that, and the world can move on and bypass it. And with something like a musical that takes so long to develop, generally speaking, um, I could see that being a race against time in some respects. 
how many I don't, projects? I don't do. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, no, sorry. No, no, no. We're no, go talking ahead. each other with that. No, no, no. Yeah, you're good. Um, I think that's why I tend to go towards timeless topics in my writing. Um, you know, uh, you know, everyone knows Neverland. That book is always going to be around. You know, people are always going to be interested in a backstory. Uh, you know, I taught, I write about historical figures, you know, that, and what they've contributed to society. That's always going to be timeless. I was just rereading through my play that won your award. I thought there's a couple of lines in here that in a little while, like I put them in for a laugh line, but they're soon (laughs) like the line about Karen and Milani, you know, I'm going to have to take them out and just put something else in there because it's a hundred percent. But I mean, that's always the danger with comedy too, right? I mean, you go back and watch Blazing Saddles and it's like, Oh yeah. I mean, it's just comedy. Comedy is going to be dated because it's, it's, it's gotta be so relevant and so in the moment um, that it, it can date itself. Um, how many projects are, do you juggle at a given time? How many are you working on right now? Um, you know, when I'm working on these full lengths, I pretty much am just doing it one at a time because there's usually okay. for me, there's so much research involved. Okay. Um, and that's another challenge too. When you're dealing with historical figures, there is a lot of work you do beforehand and during. I must have 30 books on the Cone Sisters and Gertrude Stein. And every time I'll go back and I'll reread. And if you don't start writing right away, you tend to forget everything if you take it. Yeah. Notes. Yeah. And reread everything. But then at a certain point, you also have to put it aside because I'm not writing a documentary. You know, I'm searching for essential truth, not what is real or not. And so I have to um, do honor to these characters that lived in real life, but it's also my responsibility as a theatrical writer to write it in a way that invites the audience to bring their imagination to it, to come up with fantasy things that didn't happen in real life, but I think could have, or that just make it work on a stage. I'm realizing that you operate in a dangerous space. You operate in musical theater and and so much historical stuff and those are two very risky um areas to operate in and i want to address the historical narratives do you hear the characters when you're writing the dialogue or because i would imagine that would be difficult if you're reading books you're getting this research but so you have information but can you hear their voices like what is that process like for you then to develop dialogue out of that great question chris well this is going to sound a little woo woo <laughs> you're in the right place for that that's okay um i often feel their energy in fact um just a couple of weeks ago when i decided i didn't really want to write the play about jc Liondecker, but write it about frank i just i felt i felt him i felt him be like so um, tears are coming to my eyes but i felt him being so grateful that somebody wanted to write his story and illuminate his art and what he wanted. Oh my gosh. It's just really, <laughs> you know, you know, when you, when you cry, they say that's true. No, <laughs> you fucking made me start to tear up. That's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, no. Yeah. I, I totally get that. Unrequited art. Yeah. Sometimes it's just damn hard work, honestly. And um, I'm, I'm struggling to honor them, but also have a part of me as a writer in the process, you know, again, because it's not a documentary and I, I don't have to do that, um, but to not portray them in a way that's either slanderous or anything like that, but sure. that really honors you know, who I think they were at the core of their being. And through that, uh, I know myself better. Another tool that I use, and again, here's a real woo-woo part, <laughs> for like over 30 years, I've been going to various psychic mediums. <laughs> I have a few that I really trust. And there have been times when I've asked to connect with the spirit of somebody that I'm writing about. Um, now, since I write about personal people in my life as well, um, I've had several sessions with the soul of my nephew when I was writing that play about him. And in fact, a lot of the dialogue in the play is verbatim 
what came through in the session because I really wanted to honor his words. And so occasionally I will do that. You know, not all, not wow. every spirit is always available, especially if they died a long time ago, which is usually who I'm writing about. Um, but it's another perspective, you know, because as spirit, they have a larger perspective than we do being in a, you know, a three-dimensional mm-hmm. body here and just dealing with earth and everything we have to deal with just surviving. So it's really interesting to have those overviews. And sometimes I use them and sometimes I don't. But uh, Can you... Um, it, it, let's, let's stay in the woo woo world for a second. Cause I think that's a good place to stay, uh, on this is, are there times like if you, if you were to take away any title, any pagination, any, so you, so it could be any number of your plays and you were just to take antiseptic dialogue in a vacuum from one of your plays, just completely, um, sanitized. So you have no idea which one of your plays it is. It's just that dialogue. Would you immediately be able to tell which one of your plays it was? Forget about the subject matter, but just based on character interaction, the syncopation of their speech, the syntax they use, anything like is it something where you you realize that yeah, there's um, I really am a medium for their voice, and I'm seeing that, or is it something because you are writing about people from so long ago? There's always just going to be a lot of you in it, and it's there's kind of no escape from that. I think if any honors being any writers being honest, there's always some part of us and at least one character, if not all of them. <laughs> because we have to relate to somebody to write them empathetically. And how do you relate to somebody? Because they have a situation or occurrence or a personality trait that we also have or somebody that we know has. Yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of me in all these. And like, I, I'm not going to tell you which ones are based on my life or not. <laughs> I'm not even going to tell you if the play you chose is based on my life. <laughs> my family's still alive. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, yeah, I, I think writing is a way to figure out who you are <laughs> and how you want to express yourself on this earth and a legacy that you want to leave behind. So there is literally, mm. even if it's a situation that I'm not in, um, it w- or has never occurred to me, there's still part of me in it. And in fact, I work very hard to try and have my characters sound different, you know, to have mm-hmm. different syntax because a lot of writers tend to just all write characters all the same and in perfect English and they never interrupt each other. And, you know, right. so um, I actually teach a playwriting, uh, several playwriting courses. And so we talk about that quite a bit, you know, in terms of making each character unique. And so you would know immediately it's that character. It's, it's Stella, you know, and not Blanche, right. Stanley, right. And not right. either one of them. For you, uh, this is kind of an obvious question, but I, sometimes get some surprising answers when I ask it. When do you get highest as a writer? What get, what, what really is the climactic moment for you? When it's done. <laughs> Although it's never done. Cause you know, every single time I pull up a play, particularly a short play, I'll just start noodling around with the dialogue again. So there's this saying that plays are never finished. They're just abandoned. And I think that's true. You just like move on to the next project. And then if somebody wants to do it, you'll take a quick look at it again and see if there's anything you want to fix or change, even after you've seen productions. I mean, Stephen Sondheim, you know, uh, Arthur Miller, the greatest writers after it closed on Broadway is going on tour. They're changing things, you know, they, yeah. they see yeah. things that something could work better. Um, so I'm, I lost the, the train here. What was the question? <laughs> no, no, no. It's all right. I mean, do you think, uh, do you see that as a, um, well, actually I want to jump to something else because you answered enough of it, but I want to, I want to dovetail on what piggyback on what you said. Do you think the workshop process is helpful after you've, if it's a workshop done after you've completed the work? 
because I'm of the opinion that there's limited value in that. And a lot of the notes kind of will help the playwright on their next play. But sometimes that round's just left the chamber. It's like we pulled the trigger, that round left. And yeah, there's maybe some little things we can do, but it's hard to do any sort of substantial reimagining. That's a great question. You know, there's a difference between readings and workshops, as you know. Mm-hmm. So what I, to, just to clarify, with a workshop, you know, you're really digging in deep into the material. You can maybe play with scenes, take things sure. out, put things in. You know, whereas a reading, it's more like, let's just get this up. We want to see what we have. So those can, you know, be helpful or not. In fact, as I'm discussing with my collaborators about possibly financing this um, reading of our musical, it's based on a play that's had a lot of workshops and readings and stage readings already. So I said to them, you know, I'm not so concerned right now about seeing the reading if we can't financially afford it, because I know the story works and I know these character works, even though we have more, you know, we may need to get rid of some songs, add new songs, move some things around, but, you know, at its heart, this story works. And, um, you know, I can't say what we are, what it is, but right now we're semifinalists for something pretty big. So like we're getting validation from the universe. Yep. That it is we're on the right track with how we are deciding to tell the story. So I do find workshops really helpful. I've had ones that are like two weeks, three weeks long. Um, usually they're at colleges, um, mm. which is great. You really get to work that material. You get to try different things. And that's what writers need. We need to be in a room and work with actors, work with the directors. And then, of course, the final piece is the audience. So if you can have people come in, which you do for a workshop, sometimes for a reading, sometimes not, then, you know, I like to sit in the back, back row. So I can watch people's bodies. I can hear their breath. I can see where they're coughing, where they're restless, where they're looking at their program, when they're gasping, you know, when they're laughing. And, and to answer your other question, the best part of me, the best part is when you're sitting in an audience and something's being performed and you hear them laugh or gasp or cry it's something that I created in my imagination. Mm. You know, there's no other feeling like that in the world. And I've been an actor on stage. I've been <laughs> thousands of people. You know, I've been a director and nothing is like writing something that people appreciate. It's the greatest feeling in the world. Have you ever hit a point, whether because of the particular story that you're trying to tell or just because you were just fed up and gone, fuck it, I'm going to do a novel. Because it, I can have unilateral control. I can execute this. Like that, just you know, there's there's the ability to maybe take the flash to ba- all the way to bang, as opposed to, oh god, now we got to wait on funding. Oh, I got too many characters. Oh, I don't know where the thread of this story is going. It's too internal. Like, has there ever been something like that where you've wanted to shift mediums? Well, one of the best advice I had ever gotten about playwriting was after you finish the first draft, put it in a drawer for a week and walk away from it, or even more if you can. Because in that first flush of creating, we don't have perspective. And then after a few weeks, you can pull it out and go, oh, my God. <laughs> you know? but, but in the first flush of creating, you are the creator. And that's so important to not inhibit that with the internal editor that is always like looking mm-hmm. over Arva's shoulder as we write. So I really try not to do any edits until I've got something full out. But it, it, when you're writing narrative, historical narrative, that's so hard because it's, and then they did, and then they did, and then they did, and it's really boring and tedious, but you have to do that and then go back and start saying, what do I have? So I talk to my students all the time about that we are sifting for gold. You know, you just get that little pan and you throw mm-hmm. the dirt in it and you just, you go like this. But you got to have the dirt first. And then whatever is left that's gleaming, those are your gems. You know, those are your storylines, your spine of the story, the things that that pop for you and then, you know, are going to pop for an audience. And then you keep polishing them until it's ready. So, yeah, it's all hard. I don't know any writer. <laughs> things. There's times when you're in the flow and that's awesome and wonderful. And then there's times when it is just hard and you just got to put it in the drawer 
and walk away. But I have a few plays, short plays that will never see the light of day again. I just can't get them to work. Um, mm. The other advice I would give people is get into a writer's group. So important. Uh, when I moved down to South Florida, there really, at least that I was aware of, there was no writer's groups here. So I am a can-do person. I'm a New Yorker. <laughs> I just said, then I'm going to start one. So uh, five, we just started our fifth year. Five years ago, we started in person uh, at a place where I was a uh, musical theater academy where I was teaching after school. My boss was wonderful. And she said, you can use the space at night. So um, I just put the word out to South Florida writers. And then we also started at a college campus here. Since the pandemic started, we're now online. So I have about 30 people that meet every week in these two groups uh, and we meet weekly, you know, and so we bring work in, they get feedback and then they revise it, they bring it in again, and then it goes out into the world. And we've had so many successes from that. So the play that won this went through many, many rounds in my writer's group and also at Theater Lab at FAU because they had chose it for a reading and um, Mm. it, it got quite worked over there. So I'm so grateful for those development opportunities, which are few and far between for writers, as you know. With the writers group, because it's a play and it's theatrical, you know, theatrical work, do the writers pair off and go, hey, I want you and you to read this? Like, how do you actually voice it? Or is it all just written off, right off the page? You know, every writer's group is different. But what we do is um, we basically keep it to writers in the group. From time to time, we'll bring in some actors, but we find that changes the dynamic in the room. Um, and while we value their input in terms of the characters and them acting the characters right now, what we're really looking for is, is feedback on the writing, the structure, mm-hmm. character development. So, uh, yeah, we just, um, we'll usually have anywhere from like six to nine people in the group at any given night. And the, if I'm bringing in this play, say, you know, I would cast those two characters out of who came in that night so I could hear it. I, we definitely advocate for the playwright to sit back and listen. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little harder with uh, full-length plays, um, but because we do it weekly and pretty much everybody is really great about being consistent about that, you can bring in, you know, a chunk of pages every time and just sort of go through it. And then when we're ready, we do a read, you know, we'll do a full reading at another time uh, yeah. on by people and so they can see what they have. Musicals are a little more challenging, you know? <laughs> um, yeah. And also there's another person in my group that does write musicals and I've taught some of them a little bit on writing short form, but, um, you know, I would like to be in another group specifically for musicals because there's, it's just a different kind of feedback. What's the difference for you um, in writing, I mean, a 10-minute play versus any other theatrical work that you're developing? And let me me preface that by saying, what what would drive you to do a 10-minute play? Is it kind of a palate cleanser for you in between bigger projects? Is it something that just tickles a different part of your brain? Where does that come from when you're working on massive, you know, pieces like a full-length play or a musical where does the drive to do a 10-minute play come from well again for me it comes from things that happen to me in my life that i just want to put down on paper and generally the play will tell you how long it's supposed to be so So you don't set out to write a 10-minute play no um unless it's from a specific prompt you know there's lots of submission opportunities and they'll say write about there's one right now about dreams you know just a little open-ended but okay (laughs) you know so (laughs) no i'm still mulling that over and i'm great with prompts, honestly, because I do write so much from personal experience or other things, but sometimes they will jog something for me. I'm like, oh, okay, I, I can write about this. Mm. Um, but I don't, I don't think them as a, like an exercise. I know a lot of writers kind of look down on the short form play, but I feel that it's more challenging to write a short form play than it is a full length because you don't have the time <laughs> that you have in a full length day to really explore things. You have got to be so clear and concise and get right to the point 
And that is a skill. You know, you are a sculptor when you're, when you're writing a play and you're taking away everything that is not the play, everything that is not the clay in terms of what you want to create. And, um, it's challenging. What's nice is that the, if they, they're shorter so that you can have a finished piece in much less time. Um, so, you know, if I really need to just create something right now so I can feel good, you know, <laughs> a short form play, um, then the next thing would be a play. And then the last thing would be a musical, just because those take so long, every aspect of them. I, you know, I've written like about a play a year now, whereas again, working 10 years on that other musical, this new musical about the Cone Sisters of Gertrude Stein, you know, we are still working on getting everything done with the first draft. And that's been like a year and a half. So, you know, it's it, it just takes a long time. And if you're at a certain age in your life, you know, you do want things to get out there. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Get to see production before I die. So <laughs> Right. Right. Do you find that working on a 10 minute play does help clear your head on the longer, the bigger projects that you're like, hey, cool. I was kind of stuck on a bigger project. I was able to do a 10 minute play, get away from the bigger project for a minute, get something to completion and now come back with a bit fresher eyes, clearer head, maybe some different perspective on troubleshooting and problem solving in the bigger piece? Well, they're, they're, they're three different animals, really. A short play, a long play, and a sure. musical. But I think anything that helps me be a better writer in terms of my craft always informs my other pieces, you know, in terms mm. of character, in terms of story development, in terms of building to conflict and climax and how do you resolve that. So, um, and you know, if you think about it in a play, each, each, each scene is in and of itself a mini play, you know, because you're starting at one point, you're ending on another point. There's things that have to happen in that negotiation between characters in that particular scene. Yeah. So yeah, every, as you know, just going through life, everything we do informs other things somewhere down the line, even jobs that you think, yep. what, I hate this job. How is it going to help me? And you will find it actually helps you. I worked in offices for years as a temp after college. And I really didn't like them because I want to be doing the arts, but I learned organizational skills there. I learned about deadlines there. You know, I learned about collaborating with the people being in, a, in an office and dealing with personalities that have all helped me as a director, as a writer, as everything else. So everything, we nothing is wasted in our life, I believe. No, I think that's, I, I, I completely agree. Um, Maybe McDonald's. And- I don't know. <laughs> But no. I did learn from that. I never want to work in McDonald's again. So. <laughs> Which is a pretty valuable lesson. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> um, let's back up to, to you and to your life and kind of take a 30,000 foot view of how you got to where you are now. And with the work you're doing, do you think it's necessary for a writer? This is such a loaded question. Do you think it's necessary though for a writer to have suffered uh, disproportionately. Do you think it's necessary for a writer to have lived on the edge more, or ex- had this uh, had deeper, uh, kind of more extreme experiences to be able to capture that, or is it really something that it's just about sensitivity and being aware and attuned to everyday trauma? And you can find, you know, the extremes of humanity just in the everyday living. Such a great question. Um... I just wrote a short, not a 10-minute play, it's about a 15, 20-minute play that's going to be done at Theater 3 in New York in February, March. And it's called The Dating Pool. And uh, I am a widow of about a year and a half now. And uh, I'm just starting to think about mm, whenever we're 
ever through this pandemic, you know, maybe starting to date again. And I swim every day, you know, and I kept, um, and there's diving boards there. And I hadn't been on a diving board since I was a kid. And so it took like a couple of months, but I finally got up on the diving board and I jumped off and, you know, that feeling of exhilaration and also fear when you hit the water. And I was thinking about that and how that's an analogy for dating too, you know, about how we're, you're afraid to get back into the pool. And so I wrote this play called The Dating Pool. And it's about my 61-year-old self, which is where I am right now. And all her younger selves are coming forward to meet her in the pool who had had various dating disasters or relationship disasters. And they're all trying to sort of come together to assist this woman in jumping off the diving board and jumping back in. So Mm -hmm. I could not have written that at in my 20s, in my 30s, in my 40s, even my 50s. I had to be this age to be able to look back, to understand the life lessons, to be able to write that. However, I I am um, I'm part of New Play Exchange. You know, I go to uh, playwright seminars and workshops all over the country. I was part of the Kennedy Center this summer. I was part of um, the William Inge Play Festival mm. last year, and I meet playwrights who are barely out of their twenties, and they are writing things. And I'm like, how are you doing that? Like, how mm. can you write these characters? You know, but I, yeah. that goes into the larger woo-woo category for me that I do believe that we are these souls encompassing a body that we all have many hundreds of years of many lives experience. You know, and I think some people are just better at tapping into that zeitgeist than others and writing from a place of knowing that has nothing to do with who you physically are and what your physical age is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there's something to having gone through experiences, you can write it in such an authentic way. You know, and I think when we don't like something that we see on TV or movies or film, it's because we sense in our soul that it's inauthentic, that that person just doesn't know what they're talking about. Or we'll just say, that doesn't, that's not how it happens. Right, right. <laughs> yes. Veteran, you know, I'm sure if you watch plays about war, like, you know, exactly, yeah, that would never happen, you know. <laughs> no, but but uh, 100%. I mean, the bullshit detector goes off very, very quickly for anybody. You know, if there's something you really know, yeah. And, and the second you see any, um, anomaly or any, any, yeah, any cognitive dissonance. It's like, oh yeah, no, that's, that's not how that goes. This is a, uh, I don't know. This is kind of a, a uh, not offensive question, but it's I uh, I don't know. It's a gut check question. Where are you weakest as a writer? Do you think when you look at your work, is there stuff that you look and you go, ah, I really, you know, struggle with this, or I struggle with that, or I want to get better at this, or I, so I keep running into problems in X. Is there anything like that for you still? A story structure. <laughs> oh, you know, God. I, yeah. Yeah, I hear you. But more and more, I'm finding that my job is really to know the characters inside and out. Because the more I know characters, then I can put them into imaginary scenarios and, and I know exactly how they'll respond. And then after that, I can sort of take a look back and look at the structure. And that's when the writer's group really comes in helpful too. You know, is this clear? Does it make sense? Is it following through in a way that builds the story? So I write, I read a lot of playwriting books about story structure. I'm reading through Jeffrey Street Sweet's books right now, mm-hmm. which are super helpful. And Gary Garrison's book on the 10 minute play, you know, because I teach playwriting as well. So I'm, you know, constantly taking sure. it so that I can then give that to my students. Um, but yeah, I would say that's like, how do I tell this story? It's just a scary thing. Um, how do I end it? You know, <laughs> uh, why would anybody even care about seeing this? You know, all those sometimes garbage thoughts, you know, that you just, but again, you have to write the garbage draft and just get that out on the page first. And then you can start seeing. And, you know, for structure, there are specific things that you can do, classes you can take, things that will definitely help you. Uh, I'm a Dramatist Guild ambassador for South Florida. I've been a Dramatist Guild member for like 30 years more, I think. And uh, they have wonderful classes, too, that you can take just in terms of every aspect of playwriting and musical theater writing. But I think, you know, being a storyteller, that's something that's innate, right? You know, there's just Mm -hmm. something that 
it, it either moves you and that's how you want to express yourself on the page and onto the stage or not. And uh, like anything else, you know, there's certain skills that can be learned, but is, is there that inner fire and that passion for it that mm. you can elevate the work so that other people feel something through it? Because that's the whole reason we write, correct? You know, yeah. it's so yeah. that other people will feel something so that we can get that energy out of us and then share it with them. What would you? What do you think your strengths are? I I, I know what I would say, but I, I'm just interested in what you. Where when do you when do you go? Oh yeah, this is this is this is my sweet spot right here. This is where I fucking get after it. Well, one of the strengths I think is that I have been involved in theater since I'm about 12 years old, 11 <laughs> maybe, and I've done just about every job in theater except designer. Drawing is. <laughs> um, but I, actually, I am a visual artist as well, but not so much with drawing with other mediums. But, you know, I've been an actor, I've been a director, I've been backstage, I've been crew, I've been everything. Like, I understand every job in theater. I understand what they need to do. And I teach theater appreciation at colleges, you know, so I'm a professor as well. So um, that I bring to the table in that I know how to write a scene because I know what the actors need there. I know what they need from those characters. I write very much as a director, thinking in terms of stage pictures and imagination. And more and more, I'm trying to put a lot of more space into my plays so that the designer and the director have freedom for their imagination. And I'm not dictating every single little thing, you know, to trust my collaborators in this process of bringing it to a stage. Now, as a control freak, I'm a type A person. (laughs) That is challenging, but I'm finding they really like that. And it frees me up to use symbolism and to use metaphor, which is what theater is based on. Uh, you know, and, uh, I, I don't usually write kitchen sink plays. I write a lot of stuff where it's just, there's ambiguity in it and you can come up with different ways in my uh, piece now about, uh, the Lion Decker brothers. I have some of the artwork coming to life that they created. I have the arrow collar man is going to be betrayed either like a puppet, like Avenue Q or a cutout, like oh, Sunday cool. in the park with George, you know, I'm like creating those opportunities for things to transcend everyday life. And just be part of the magic of theater, you know, of how we express story. So I think that's a, a strength of mine, just all that experience I bring. Um, collaboration, certainly. NYU teaches you collaborating and BMI, if nothing else. Yeah, um, I, bet. I bet it does. Uh, and to um, re- a drive to leave something on this earth after I go. I mean, the proudest I've ever been was my play about my nephew, which is called Family by Numbers. It's had over 20 productions all over the world, and it's published in two different books now. And for me, I like to have something tangible that as long as there are books on this planet, you know, yeah. uh, that his story will live on through what I put down on the paper, my, my brother's family. And that, that means everything. Like, I could die happy today knowing that I left something on the earth of value that will move other people and help them with their grief. Do you think it should almost, in, in any playwright's mind, it should almost be a prerequisite to have done other jobs in the theater? The playwrights should push themselves to do that. Do you think that's, is it, it would you advise that as necessary or just a nice to have, but not a need to have? Isn't that part of the homework to at least be a theater goer? <laughs> like, so you understand what the process is. I mean, I think yeah. you could come to writing without it, just being an audience member, you know, that just watches a lot and reads. I think reading, you know, read as many plays as you can, see as many plays as you can and uh, be an audience member, be on the other side. Like anything else in life, I think the more experience you have in anything, it makes you a more well-rounded individual. Mm-hmm. You have more mm-hmm. compassion and um, cohesion and clarity about what something is. On the other hand, you know, there's always that beginner's luck, you know, when somebody comes into something new and they just 
Right. But again, that goes back to the soul, you know, who knows? Maybe I was, I was a famous playwright in another life or I was a cone sister or something. Who knows? <laughs> and, uh, and so I'm able to write with, with such authority on the subject. Um, but you know, most writers will tell you, they also think their stuff is either the best thing ever written or total garbage. <laughs> there's, there's no in between usually. Yeah. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's that, that fine line between neuroticism and pure outright ego. Yeah. It's like, yeah. <laughs> Um, for you, I want to, I want to talk a little biographically about just what your trajectory was like. So I think growing up in a house that certainly had an appreciation of art and of words and wordplay and all that, what would you have done if it hadn't been there? Would you still have, let's say, turned out the same way? Did you think that was crucial? Was that truly an inciting moment? for your creativity, or do you think this was innate to you? I had a, a reading at the Omega Institute in uh, Rhinebeck, New York, many years ago, and that medium had said to me that you have the chart of a writer. And that was mm. before I'd even started to write anything. And I also thought that was really interesting. She also said you're going to be teaching children, and at that point I wasn't teaching anybody, and I just thought she was crazy. So, <laughs> um, so I, yeah, I, you know, who knows? Who knows? The other road, the path not taken, right? The road mm-hmm. you didn't take, as Sondheim wrote. Yeah. But I think given my personality, I've always been a very sensitive person. I've always been an em- empathetic person. I would have gone into some sort of helping career because I've been a teacher as well, you know, an educator mm-hmm. um, for as long, longer than I've been a writer, really. So I would have gone into something. And I think, you know, as a sensitive person, most sensitive people gravitate to the arts, I don't think I would have, you know, I'm so grateful I had the support and that it was encouraged, maybe not necessarily to have a career in the arts, but certainly to have, to have an interest in it, you know, and to follow sure. those interests. Um, so I don't know. I, that's a question for me to ask when I pass over. I guess I'll let yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah, let me know that. <laughs> yeah. What, um, when did you decide that it was going to be a career or when did it, when was it just foisted upon you? When was it like, this is going to be my thing? Was that right then from that early age, from when you really were immersed, getting immersed in theater? Well, when I went in, I, my undergrad was at Bucknell University in Pennsylvania. And I went in there thinking I'm going to be a writer. Like at that point, I, I knew I loved writing and that's what I wanted to be. But I, you know, I, they had an open house and I went to the theater <laughs> and I stepped in. And I was like, that's basically where I lived for the next four years in the music wow. building. Wow. Um, so writing definitely, I, I, I mean, I would write, but it was most, mostly that. So it really wasn't until, um, well, it would have been BMI around 2003, 2004, where I just wanted to start. I don't know where it came from. I'd have to think about that for a while. Like, why did I start writing when I've been doing directing and everything else? But I think there was just a story. You know, I just knew there was something I wanted to write down. And uh, that was the next evolutionary step from being an actor into a director, into a writer. When, when you graduated from Bucknell, where did you go there? Did you go back to the city? Yeah, I did. And like I said, I was a temp for many years. You know, I did mm-hmm. community theater at night um, in New Jersey, um, got married and divorced. You know? <laughs> so it was like some derailing there and just sort of like yeah. getting- Well, life, right. And, but I was in the cabaret world for many years. Um, I was mm-hmm. a performer in cabaret. Um, I ran the Russian Tea Room cabaret room for a year. You did know, you I, really? I was oh, a wow. Bar. I was a piano bar entertainer at the duplex and- Oh, gosh, yeah. Rose's turn and Brandy's. And I'll tell you, there is nothing that will prepare you for life, except maybe basic training like you had, than being a piano bar entertainer because 
dealing with people who are drunk, you know, dealing with people who just want to have a good time or talking over you or running out on the bill. You know, I learned every life skill possible working as a piano bar entertainer. What, uh, let, let's drill into that. I, I, I say it with a little bit of affection because I, I, uh, my very first big stand-up show was at Don't Tell Mama, uh, <laughs> got 25 years ago. Um, and I did an hour, an hour's worth of material and I did not have an hour's worth of material and I developed it going to Central Park and trying to tell jokes because I couldn't get enough stage time in the city to develop it. And it was brutally hard to get ready for. It went fine, uh, but it was, uh, but anyway, that was my closest experience to piano bar culture. So tell, tell me about being a piano bar entertainer. First off, what, what, what does that mean? Are you just the accompanist and somebody's playing and you're singing? For people that don't know, I mean, uh, it's a great job just for like learning your craft, but there is a bartender. There are waiters, servers on the floor. Um, and then there is uh, someone at a piano who's a singer, song, uh, singer, player, um, often songwriter as well. And so your job is it's twofold. It's to entertain everybody that comes in every night through the door. And it's also to sell drinks, you know, because it is a bar. <laughs> um, so but it's so much fun. And every uh, as you probably saw, if you walk through that room at Don't Tell Mamas, I've been there many times. I have friends that still work there. Um, each night has a different personality based on the pianist pianist that is running the room and also the bartenders, big bartenders in the service also sing. Everybody there is a singer or performer in some way, shape or form. And so it's a great job if you want to make money, but still have a foot in whatever your career is or that you want mm-hmm. to do. You know, your there's again, there's nothing like having to try and capture an audience's attention when they have other things vying for that, including being somewhat inebriated. <laughs> <laughs> And, um, you know, and you get to work on repertoire, you get to create Mm. medleys and things. I mean, it was invaluable. And again, I'm still friends with all the people that I did that because that is really like. (laughs) It was a bonding experience. It's a bonding experience. And you also become very good at reading people. You know, we had bouncers at the door, but, you know, the minute somebody walks in, you are always sort of casing them. I'm sure you do that in a war zone, too. You know, you're always very aware in your body of potential danger. And I am not in any way equating working as a piano bar entertainer with being a soldier. (laughs) But. I'm sure there's many nights that it is, but no, yeah, no. Verbally attacked. I had one clearly got punched in the eye one time by somebody coming, you know, so, and, you know, I was doing it back in the nineties for the most part, a little bit in the two thousands. So it wasn't so much an issue with weapons and things, but, you know, certainly something that you have to think about now. So we don't have, you know, detectors at the door or anything like that. So you're always just uber aware of your surroundings, which is a great life skill to have. And, you know, I think you and I must've been in the piano bar, world at the same same time time, which is really cool so um i really like that i really like the camaraderie of everybody everybody works together it was great as a singer to work with different pianists um at different places i worked with jerry diefenbach for a long time we're still such good friends and he worked my cabaret shows Mm -hmm. um you know which was just such a, a labor of love you know i i bartended i served and it's a great atmosphere, but you have to be the kind of person who's okay for your nine to five actually being 9 p.m. at night to 5 a.m. in the morning. And if you also have a day job, which I did, it, it gets a little challenging. And, you know, I eventually left it because for me, on my spiritual path, trying to ply people with more alcohol, um, mm. and I come from a family that has alcoholism rampant in it, I didn't feel that that was the correct path for me anymore. I just felt like I couldn't participate in that anymore as much as I like the social and the singing aspects of it. That's Uh, fair. That's absolutely fair. 
But, you know, that's saying it's a great job for people and it was a great way to make a living. I financed so, so many things for myself working there. That actually makes me ask, what, what did your parents think of you professionally pursuing a career in the arts? Did they continue to be supportive? Did there was it where there's concerns? Were they like, okay, do we have to get practical at some point? Like, what what was their reaction? What was their response and support like? Well, my mom always wanted to be Barbara Streisand, <laughs> so she was the first person, you know, being the artist. You know, she was the person who sat me down in front of. Like, remember Channel Eleven in New York, and they would show all those old movies, the black and white movies, the Fred sure. Ginger movies, the MGM movie musical. So that's really what it all started for me. Um, and then she was my biggest fan at any musical that I was performing in or play. Mm. Um, my dad was uh, starting his his doctor career. You know, he is he is a war veteran, so he is the person why I'm here. Right. Um, he, of course, was more concerned with me being able to support myself through my life, you know, having a job that would give me health insurance and benefits and all that like that. So, you know, his goal for me has always been, you know, can you take care of yourself? You know, are you, do you have life skills that, that will help you? Cause I'm not going to be here forever. And he has really gone above and beyond because as you know, you know, a life in the arts, even with working survival jobs on the side, there are definitely times where um, outside financial assistance is is necessary and needed. And I don't think I would be where I am now. I know I would not be where I am now in my writing career if they hadn't both been supportive, both financially and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it, I think my dad has just accepted me as who I am at this point and that I, I'm not going to be the person that's going to have that 9 to 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. job anymore. I've tried those. Oh I've done those. And it's, for me, it's just soul killing. You know, I just, uh, I'd rather work a whole bunch of part-time jobs that are interesting and in my field because I'm teaching playwriting. I'm now teaching private lessons. I'm teaching after-school piano. I'm teaching theater appreciation. You know, I'm teaching all these things, but they're all in the same wheelhouse. You know, it's all about the craft of being an artist in music and theater. So I'm very grateful that my soul chose these two people to be my parents. (laughs) Plus with the challenges, you know, that brought, there was different reasons. And I do want to cycle back just to McDonald's for a minute (laughs) because I realize I'm talking. I did use McDonald's because I have a play about McDonald's versus an unnamed big theme park (laughs) company because I had done some research and I found out that um, that theme park company at a certain point had thrown out McDonald's because they didn't want unhealthy food in their parks. And I thought, what a great idea for a short musical about McDon- the characters of McDonald land, like Ronald McDonald, all pledging revenge against the characters of this unnamed theme park company to get back at them for throwing them out of the park. So I have this hysterically funny play. <laughs> That's all. Is it full length? No, it's like a 15, 20 minute play. Oh my Lord. Um, it's called Get That um, Rodent. I'm not going to say the actual word. Um, um, but it's about that so you know actually that job did help me later on you know that's hilarious yeah Yeah. absolutely i want to drill into um just your your relationship with your dad only because of the veteran aspect yeah sure how much so was he what what war did he serve in he was in the public health service so uh in the 60s and the 70s so he was a medical officer and he actually saved somebody's life you know, who was drowning. So it's um, wow. amazing. And he loved it. He is so proud of his time in the service. What did, how did that translate inside the house? Did it, was there, well, I don't know. I mean, you tell me, I'll leave it open-ended, but I mean, you, I, I have to imagine, I, I, I'm of, of the belief that anybody that works in the profession of arms, life or death business, there, there's definitely going to be a bleed over into the house in ways that I think are generally positive. There can't be negative aspects of it, I suppose. But how was it for you? What did that mean for you growing up? 
You know, my dad's a very humble man. You know, he's not a braggart in any way. Um, he was working hard to establish himself as a doctor. He was the first doctor in central New Jersey to start an uh, hematology and oncology office. There wasn't any there. So um, unfortunately, I didn't see him as much as I would have wanted to growing up because he was so busy supporting his family. I have a, a younger sibling and um, he's since remarried. And so I have a, a sibling from that family as well. But he uh, I didn't even know that he had been in the service until I was going through a box in my mom's closet one time. And I found these clippings of him saving this man who was drowning. And so then I asked. So he was definitely proud of his service, but he didn't um, laud it all over the place. I, I just gave my younger sister his jacket from being <laughs> in the public health service, you know, because he had given me his jacket and this cap. And somewhere along the way, I lost the cap, but I gave her the jacket because she's about 30 years younger than me. So then I, she will have it. And when she has children, it'll go to her children so that we continue that legacy. And, and I've asked him some questions about it. And was so he open I, to talking about it or was he kind of like brushed off? I mean, you know, he didn't see combat like, mm -hmm. like he did, yeah, sure. just did, but you know, he certainly went through basic training and everything else. And he worked in veterans hospitals up until he retired just a couple of years ago. He took great pride in that in helping veterans who had cancer. And um, so I always knew that, uh, but he was, he's a very important force in my life. I think because my father's so focused on, you know, you being able to take care of yourself, arts are secondary. I think, you know, there's certainly part of me that always wants to be a success. You know, yeah. and like my big dream is to have a show open off Broadway or on Broadway while he's still on this planet so that he can he can see it. You know, I, I know he feels that I'm successful in ways, but I would just as a, as his child, as his daughter, that that daddy daughter dynamic, you know, I would just love to say, look, I was correct in pursuing this path. And thank you for supporting me as you did, because this is what I'm on this earth to do. You know, and I'm very fortunate. Both my parents are still here. They're in their early 80s, but they're here. Mm. And um you know, certainly going through the loss of my family, of my nephew and then my husband, you know, there's been a lot of things my family's had to deal with in the past couple of years, but um, he's really been the rock for everybody. And it's always been, and has always cared for people so much and help them out in any way that he can. Mm. My mom too, you know, she's, she's like the emotional one mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. gives the emotions and the feelings. And he's the the pragmatic one. And that's great to have that combination. Are they, are, do they live close to you in Florida or are they no, up in New York still? my mom lived in New York City for most of her life. She's now in um, Hoboken, New Jersey. Oh, um, yeah. Sure. My brother and his family now live in Princeton. My dad and his um, second wife now live in Maine. Oh, wow. Um, and his uh, his daughter, Kelsey, my half-sister, she's down here, has been down here in Miami, but she's moving back to Maine in just a couple of weeks. So so I, I have some second cousins and, you know, here, but that's, I'm pretty right. much alone here. Um but I don't want to block from the beach, so. <laughs> <laughs> you can console yourself with that. I'm what, good. What, what was it like for you moving to Florida? Um, especially coming from the New York City area. Um, you're not, certainly not the first to do it, but what did it mean for you? And what was the transition like? Um, well, I first came down to South Florida in 1997. Um, at that point, like I was just ending everything in the piano bar and feeling the way that I described um, you know, temping and all that stuff just wasn't filling in my soul anymore. And I was involved with somebody who had just moved down here. Um, she was going to flight school. And so, um, I thought, you know, let's try this relationship and I'm going to go down there and live there. And I, I loved Florida from visiting my grandparents there. So I moved down there. I was down there for four years. Um, and during that course of time, I was no longer with that partner. I was with somebody else who then died of alcoholism, <laughs> We were living together, though he died wow. about a year after. So yeah, there was a lot of drama. In fact, that's a play now. <laughs> so anybody who's in my course. life should really be careful because, like, you're going to get a play written about you sooner or later. You're like the Taylor Swift <laughs> of theater. That's right. Yeah. 
back to the play that you chose, Sex, Lies, and Styrofoam. Yeah, there is uh, definitely some a uh, little bit of revenge there for me <laughs> about something. But um, and it's great because you can change genders, you can change stories, you can change all sorts of details, and only you know. It's very satisfying to work out that that drama and that stuff, you know. And if they don't like it, they can write their own play about it. <laughs> So I was here for four years, but then, you know, that's when I started to get into writing. Um, and I knew, you know what? And I also felt that my life partner wasn't down there, you know? So as much as I love living on the beach there and it was a great place, um, I decided to move back because I wanted to go to the NYU program, be with my family. Um, and so I did that. And then I ended up getting married um, again. And uh, his name was Paul and he worked for American Airlines. So there was this whole shift that happened and then something opened up uh, down in Miami. And I knew I wanted to move back to Florida at that point, too, because New York, this was after Hurricane Sandy and everything was just off. I had to move because of that. And we had gotten married. And so um, so we moved down here in 2016. We lived in Miami Beach uh, until he died in 2021. And then I had to get my landlords decided to sell. So like two months later, I had to move. But I but I love Palm Beach County. I knew I wanted to get back here. So now I'm in Delray Beach and uh, I'm really happy here. I'm like I said, I'm doing some writing courses with places that are local here. I've got my writing groups and I've got a great theatrical family here and it's warm all year round and I have the beach (laughs) and it's great for writing. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to ask. Do you find um, that living in a uh, warmer, more uh, scenic, temperate environment has changed your writing at all? Does it change your focus? Does it change your subject matter? Does it change just your attitude towards writing? Because I I, I could see that happening, but you tell me if that actually applied (laughs) in your case. Oh, you know me too well. So I'm going to just meet me one day. <laughs> so, you know, we're both New Yorkers. I, I will always consider myself a New Yorker. And, you know, up until now, when I'm just with the pandemic, I'm not comfortable with flying places. Um, you know, I was going back to New York all the time. I still have family there. I still have friends there. I have a lot of plays that get done there, pro- produced there. Um, there's a sharpness about New York. It is the energy of the city. It's the rhythm of the city. It's the weather as well. And when I go back, I feel like a totally different person than when I am down here. When I am down here, because I do live a block from the beach and like this little surfer shack and there's palm trees all over and everything's laid back and it's a great town. I feel like I'm on vacation all the time and it's really hard to get myself to do any work or even get myself out the door because I just want to play. I want to be outside. It's nice. I want to ride my bike. I want to walk along the beach. (laughs) So I do find that I I have to go to a library or I have to go somewhere else and just kind of hold myself away in a windowless room, shut my phone off and just write to really get anything done (laughs) that makes complete sense to me do you is it something that you have to do every day do you force yourself to write every day no but like i said no i have i I do have two projects going on right now so i'm working on that lion decker play about the Mm -hmm. two brothers but also uh, amy and i amy engelhart and i are working on the musical version of a collectible sensation so you know at this point it's more at her because she's working on the music but we're also revising lyrics um, until we get a reading, I don't want to change anything with the libretto because, as you know, I just want to see what we have first uh, before mm-hmm. I make any more changes. Um, so uh, I, I I really write to deadlines, and most writers, if they're honest, mm. will say that too. So there's submission opportunities that come down the pike. There's something with the dramatist guild; they now national have their national program for their um, fellows program. And they just extended the deadline to February 27th. So I already we already submitted for the musicals, but I'm going to submit a play. So I'm working on that Lion Decker play because you can only send 20 pages and I want to send my best 20 pages. So mm. over the next month, that's what I'll be doing. I want to try and get that first draft done, bring it into my writer's group, 
see what I have. And there's a couple of short play ops that I need to sit down and write. But again, because I write from personal narrative so often, uh, you know, if the prompt doesn't move me, nothing's going to get on the page. That's <laughs> just. Yeah. Yeah. What's, what's, what do you find is the best? Um, yeah. What techniques do you find that help to overcome? I think every writer's struggle with procrastination so you know, all, all, and and not even procrastination, but even sometimes just, uh, yeah, uh, maybe a lack of inspiration, maybe distraction. Like, what what techniques have you used to get around that? Oh my gosh! Well, you can always tell when you're procrastinating because your house is very clean all of a sudden, and those <laughs> projects that you don't want to do, like you know, reorganizing the closet or working on syllabi or doing your taxes. I mean, doing your taxes is more fun <laughs> than sitting down and creating worlds, you know. Um, and sometimes I tend to write, you know, wait until that very last minute of that deadline. And I hate when I do that because it doesn't give you time to do any rewriting. You know, it's just whatever it is, is on the page. And it's hard. It's just hard. I think it's sometimes you just have to sit down and say, okay, we need to get this done. And you, I find if I sit down first thing in the morning, you know, go to the bathroom, don't do anything else, not even yoga or my other things, just sit down in my pajamas and start writing that works. If I keep waiting, so many other things in our day-to-day life of just surviving start taking over. And that's hard. But I also am a late night bird. I don't know if you are, probably from my piano bar days. So, you know, it's not unusual for me to go to bed at one, two, three o'clock in the morning. And sometimes at 11 o'clock at night, you'll get an idea or you just go back into a rewrite and you're just writing because it's the quiet time. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. I always want to get up earlier and write. And that doesn't really seem to happen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, I have three cats, you know, and they are they're all over me too. And they're like, mommy, when are you coming to sleep? <laughs> but yeah, um, I, my process is just um, deadlines and knowing that you have to get something done. Um, it also depends on the subject matter. If I'm stuck on something, and I'm sure you've had that too. And I'm not quite sure how to work out the scene. That's when the procrastination really comes in. If something's really fun and it's more like a comedy sketch than a play, I just wrote one short play about Mondegreens, which are those misheard song lyrics. You know, when we come up, we we think something is a lyric and it's not. I wrote an entire like nine page play where two out of the three characters, they only speak in Mondegreens. And there's one character that's trying to make sense of what they're saying. And that was the oh, most brilliant. ever written. I couldn't wait to sit down and write that play every time because the research was the most fun I've ever done. <laughs> and, that's and that incredible. Fun. That's an awesome concept. Generally speaking, for a 10 minute play, how long does that take you generally to write one? Maybe a couple of days, you know, mm-hmm. depending, mm-hmm. or uh, a little bit of it. Again, just depends on the subject matter if I'm inspired. But yeah, just a couple of days. I mean, I could polish off, have a 10 minute play, be ready to submit probably within a month, you know, because I want to run it through the writers group a few times, do some rewrites, mm-hmm. figure it out. Um, I mean, if I have to, I could do it earlier, but I invariably I'm always sending things off and then going like, damn it, I should have waited a while because now I have a much better version of it. And I always ask because I figure there's nothing to be hurt by asking because if I get to be a finalist or semifinalist or something and say, hey, I actually have a more recent draft of this. If you choose it, can we use that? And most of the time I say, like, yeah, absolutely. Or, yeah, you know, we haven't chosen yet. So send along the other draft. So I sure. doesn't hurt to ask, but um, but the writer's group is really part of your process then. Oh, my gosh. So much. Yeah. And reading about writing, you know, immersing yourself in your craft, uh, you know, if nothing else, NYU and BMI drilled that into me as a lyric writer. And I use that as a playwriter too. You know what? You can't break the rules until you know what they are. So like work within the rules first, and then you can bend them and play around with them. But at the end of the day, you're telling a story and it has to be not confusing <laughs> to the audience that's coming in. It has to be clear. 
And there are certain things that you just cannot get around that. You know, you can write as imaginatively as you want, but if the audience is lost, it's our job as writers to get them out of trouble. You know, the first 10 minutes of a play or musical, everybody's in trouble because they don't understand what's going on. And it's our job to write them out of trouble. Right, right. So as a Dramatist Guild ambassador, um, I'm I'm not really- Madam ambassador. Put you on a spot for that. But (laughs) but I, I, I want- I want to ask you a kind of global question about the theater. Do you think, because uh, this is something that we run up against all the time, which is just the, for lack of a better phrase, ghettoization of theater, that theater is just kind of in its own provincial ghetto of, okay, well, there's certain people that like theater. There's certain areas, geographical areas, um, what have you, that gravitate towards theater. And for everybody else, it's a theatrical desert, and it's just not a medium that is considered. You can agree or refute that to your heart's content, but also, if you were the Pope tomorrow, if you could wave a wand and just make magically make something happen, do you think theater really should be for everyone, that more people should be into theater, that theater should be a more omnipresent cultural force in America? Or do you think, no, there's natural selection that goes on here? It's not for everybody. Some people are going to gravitate toward it. Some people should just watch Hulu and they can find shows they like there. You know, it's such a great topic because as you know, I teach theater appreciation, <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, and it's a required course. They have to take a humanities course. They don't have to take mine. They can take music or art appreciation or anything else. But, you know, the ones, a lot of times the students that come into my class have never even seen a play. They've never seen a live play. They've never been to theater. They don't know what it is, you know, and it's my job to inform them on in all the aspects. And I talk about this a lot. Um, about the three things that you need for a play to happen, which is actors, audience, and story. And that's all that you need. Everything else is just dressing. But we talk about the excitement of anything live, like a concert, a sporting Mm -hmm. event, Mm -hmm. and what that is to share energy with people around you, to have both an individual experience watching the story and a collective experience being part of the group watching it. And nothing will ever replace that. As you know, theater particularly commercial theater, is going through a reckoning now that started during the pandemic and things are changing and for the better. Um, But things still need to keep changing in terms for more representation in terms of color, in terms of race, in terms of gender, in terms of everything. Um, And so it's heartening to see that happen. But, you know, really the entire structure, particularly in commercial theater, you know, there are things that need to be fixed. And certainly on the community theater level, on the regional, you know, everything just needs to be looked at, reexamined, you know, as people evolve, as we change and hopefully become a more tolerant and accepting society, things will change in terms of what we do. And theater is a reflection of life. So as we are living life, theater is going to change as well. So um, I'm definitely of the public theater mode. I really wish theater was um, taught to everybody. I, I spent a semester studying in England when I was in undergraduate school. You know, I love, you know, they're struggling too with budget cuts, but theater is so much more respected there and has sure. so much more um, support and people recognize it. and going to theater is a, a very welcome and accepted thing everywhere. And that's why I love regional theater and community theater so much, you know, that is bringing it to the masses is explaining how important it is. Um, and again, going back to that, you know, the otherness factor that theater has traditionally, not always, certainly there's lots of abuse that's coming to light, but has traditionally been a play, a safe place for people who are considered other by factions of society. And it's important to have that safe space. Um, you know, to be able to express yourself, to to find your people, to even if you don't do it as a career, most people don't. You know, I'm. Well, it's I, a I tough place to make a career. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right, right. 
make my most of my money through teaching right now. You know, I am having money coming in through playwriting. I look forward to the day and hope it's soon, you know, where I can support myself as a playwright and a musical theater writer and then just take teaching jobs that I want to take here and there. Because sure, I do, sure. I'm a, a very good educator and I do like to do that as well. But but it would be nice, you know. A hundred percent. Yes. Just um, l- listen, uh, tell everybody where they can find you, where they should find you website, social media, anything like that, so that if people want to reach out, contact you, learn more about you, see your work, what's the best way for them to do that? Sure. Uh, I have a website. It's arianarose.net, and that's A-R-I-A-N-N-A-R-O-S-E.net. Um, it is not Ariana Rose, the porn star. There is somebody like that, and I often get... <laughs> There's a player in there somewhere, Chris. Um, <laughs> That probably bled into sex life. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, I think you had a preamble. So I often get, I have Squarespace. It'll show me the demographics of what people are looking for when they find my name. And there's always Ariana Rose, Rose porn in there. Not saying anything about porn <laughs> or sex workers at all. You know, from my play, I have no judgment. About it. But it is, um, uh, but you can find me there, arianarose.net. And I promise you the videos are G-rated. <laughs> they always go to the video page first. <laughs> Uh, you know, and it's like my children's theater is like, <laughs> like my sh- my show about the darlings. You know, <laughs> it's just so funny. Um, I'm also on New Play Exchange. You know, you do have to pay a small membership fee to be on that as a reader or as an actor or as a writer. Um, and th- those are the two main places that you can find me. And then on my work news, uh, my news uh, tab on my website, you can see um, you know what's coming up, where everything's going on, and you can also email me through my website as well. Awesome. Ariana, this was a blast. Um, thanks so much for taking some time and, and chatting. Thank you, Chris. This was wonderful. I so appreciate it. And thank you to, to Veterans Repertory Theater. The grant has been so helpful. <laughs> and it's just, Great. you know, having that honor and being able to share that with my dad, you know, has just been the greatest thing. So thank you. Well, that means a lot. Thank you. And uh, let's talk soon. Sounds good. That was the savage wonder of Ariana Rose. I really could have talked crap with her the whole time. I wanted to get some some blood moving in the interview and make sure we talked about, you know, her story and and things she had done and certainly the life she she's lived. But I uh, I think anybody that works with her on a regular basis or takes her classes is a pretty lucky person. Okay. Um stuff that you guys should know going on at Fat Rep. We do have something to talk about, I think. Don't we? I'm gonna I'm gonna filibuster here while I check the schedule. I think you guys are gonna be listening to this show in time to maybe come see something we will have going on. Yes, I think so. Yep. So February twenty fifth, up in our neck of the woods at the American Legion Post in Highland Falls, New York, we will have a public workshop of a full-length play we are busy developing called War Wound by Philip Korth, a Marine Corps veteran who is uh, wrote a somewhat autobiographical account of the invasion of Iraq from the point of view of a Marine squad in Kuwait uh, in 2003 that then moves into Iraq um, and is... Uh, as you can imagine, it's kind of based on his own experiences. It is a uh, really powerful, intense piece. Uh, 
and written with a kind of verisimilitude that you just will not see on stage. If you remember, Ariana said during the interview, she said, uh, uh, you know, that as veterans, you could probably spot some bullshit on stage if there was a you know, play about war. Uh, you, you won't find a lot of that in this play. This play is um, pretty spot on. But we're going to have, we, we anticipate having a very military, veteran-heavy audience. Uh, that's why we're doing it at the American Legion Post. And uh, we want to hear it out loud. We haven't heard it out loud before. As you heard Ariana talk about how important it is to hear plays out loud in a reading and get some idea of, you know, what their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, and also to see what its impact is on an audience. So it is open to the public. If you want to check it out, if you're in the area, please do. Uh, you can go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Go to our Now Playing tab, and you will um, see a link to get uh, free tickets. I think we'll also have tickets at the door, um, but you can at least get the information if you want to play it by ear. But uh, if you can't get tickets, that is a huge help to us because it's good for us to know how many people are coming, so we make sure you guys got seats. Um, so uh, that is coming up on February 25th, which is a Saturday night. And we would love to see any and everybody there that wants to be there because uh, the more the merrier. And uh, Phil will be there, the playwright. Uh, we're casting actors out of the city as we speak. Um, so it'll be a really good cast. And uh, I know that because we, we really don't fuck around with casts when it comes to this. We really try to give you guys the, the best theatrical experience we can. And that starts with the actors, of course. So... Um, but we look forward to you guys being there. There will be a feedback session after where audience members can talk about what they liked and didn't like about the play to the cast and to the playwright himself. And uh, yeah, be a really, really cool night. Uh, so details will be on, on the website of vetrep.org, but also um, you can stay up to date with everything we have going on by signing up to our literary blog, which also doubles as a mailing list. And that, again, is at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Go to the Now Playing tab, and when you scroll down, you will see the tab to sign up for free to subscribe to our daily mailing list, newsletter, literary blog thing. So check that out, um, and we would love to see you guys certainly on the 25th of February. Okay, I think that's all I have to say on that note. I need to thank our producer of this episode, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. On behalf of everyone here at Veterans Repertory Theater, see you next time when we will dive further into the savage wonder of veterans or their immediate family members in the arts.